0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and I'm joined today in our virtual studio by Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. And we also have Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. Hi, James. So the usual crew for, uh,
1: I think, several weeks in a row now it feels weird, actually.
0: <laughs> Such
1: consistency can only be a good thing. That's a good thing, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it, it, it tells uh, us you're not away at, race, uh, at races, Ronan. Right
1: hmm no away next week but not at a race and oh, not on okay. geek warning evening so should mm. be here next uh, week also
0: well ronan speaking of being away uh, i'm kind of curious how how slow does your ford transit feel now um
1: i mean <laughs> it 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 feels faster than i looked driving a formula one car but it feels slow and slower than i felt in said formula one car <laughs>
2: How, was there a speed limit on that only one car driving there, experience?
1: There wasn't, but the, it was like a converted RAF base and the track was designed intentionally to sort of keep you gotcha. in, 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 in tech or whatever. Like it, uh, I think the max speed you maybe get up to, there's no speed or anything, but I think it was probably about 80 miles per hour or whatever before you got oh, to the next okay. band. Uh, gotcha. But it was like, you were there within a second of coming out of a hairpin. Oh. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, okay. Mm. Would you recommend it? Um, I I definitely would. Yeah. Um, to be honest, other elements of the day were probably as good or or more uh, like meeting, exciting. like seeing Johnny Long, like seeing Johnny Long, of course. <laughs> um, but there was like a drift session in the morning. There was an F one thousand driving session on a on a better track where you had more freedom just to use the car. And oh, wow. had you had the opportunity to use the Formula One car on that track, it would have been just unbelievable. Gotcha. But I think. As we can all sort of understand, they have a Formula One car that members of the public are allowed to drive. And uh, not only was the track quite limiting to sort of keep members of the public uh, from destroying the car, but also the part of the track that you drove the Formula One car on was much better, surface much smoother. Um, you, you just couldn't have driven it on the other track. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, a bucket list thing nonetheless. Uh, yeah. So yeah, well done. That's cool. That's pretty cool.
0: Uh, Dave, I got a, a, another get another tool related question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, I have a, I'm going to present a hypothetical situation to you. So, Armageddon has come. Uh-oh. You are forced to become a self-sufficient nomad. And mm-hmm. you can only carry one tool with you as you roam whatever's left of the earth. What do you bring with you? Are there zombies? Oh, are there zombies? Uh, yes, but you have other things to deal with. That oh, okay.
2: Um, I don't know. Probably a Abby uh, be Crumbie because uh, loose cassettes really annoying. No, uh, that's <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jeez, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Probably some kind of Leatherman or something like something actually useful.
1: Surely it has to be a 3D printer, and then you can just print whatever oh, you need. Oh,
0: Very though. good. Very good. Yes. Yes um there you go that's the answer then huh, oh, okay so you're just gonna lug around a 3d printer and some filament and something to plug it into
2: yeah exactly <laughs> okay <kind of> generator <laughs> all no. right you had your chance to set the rules
1: here james i yeah. did i did oh, all right yeah. well putting putting I'll, I'll me can... on
2: the spot about this um
0: i'm not much I of a dim state prepper so i don't really think about this But uh anyway uh, I don't exactly think about about this stuff either. I do have quite a lot of food in my house. Yeah. I wouldn't exactly call myself a prepper, however. Uh, anyway, mm. <laughs> related, on, I've too. got
2: I've got some friends who firmly believe that if we ever had a zombie apocalypse, I'd be like one of the first people to die. Which is really nice of them to say. But uh, anyway, is there, my, is there a reason for that? Uh they just don't think I'd I'd live very long. So, <laughs> which is fair. Oh. Like, I'm not a I'm not a big guy. I'm not. Uh, yeah.
0: Anyway, okay, we're going right, off topic then. now. Let's let's get back. <laughs> we to are bikes. We're definitely we're definitely going off the rails. All right. Well, uh, we might be approaching the end of uh, bike racing season. Uh, things are still pretty awfully busy on the tech front, however, and we've actually got actually got quite a lot to talk about today. So Shimano, finally, finally. Uh, announced its long-anticipated road crankset recall, and we're definitely going to talk about that. Uh, SRAM is finally getting into the e-bike game. It's kind of surprising that they haven't really had something before. Uh Pinarello's got a new favorite letter of the alphabet. Canyon's going all in with its proprietary front end for road bikes uh specialized wants people to start thinking a little differently about how we look at e-bike performance too uh, we've also got a little following up to do on that little continental tire blow-off video we mentioned to you a few weeks ago and we'll make sure we, we reserve a little more time today to check out what's on our minds uh first up in the news is this shimato crank recall uh so technically speaking this announcement last week was only an official recall for the United States and Canada, but Shimano said that the corrective action was occurring worldwide. Uh, we don't have official figures for exactly how many cranksets are affected worldwide, but a seemingly safe guess is somewhere around 2 or 3 million-ish. Uh, and keep in mind, this is only for Altegra and Dura-Ace cranks produced between June 2012 and June 2019. Um, I don't think this recall came as a surprise to people who have been paying any attention to this issue for the last 10 years or so, but uh, it's kind of still a mystery why this took so long i think
2: the surprise was is that i think at this point uh shops that had seen this happening over the years we uh, were so surprised that shimano finally actually did a recall on it because it's been such a known issue for so long that it kind of felt like shimano was just always going to stay quiet on this uh and continue to uh either accept warranties in the background or say, sorry, your crank is five, six years old. Your warranty ended three or four years ago. We don't owe you anything. Uh, Yeah, it it definitely is very overdue, but I guess my, my big point on this is that uh, from my experience, every shop I knew and every mechanic I I've spoken to that a reputable mechanic was already inspecting cranks on every Shimano bike Of that sort of generation they're already looking at the cranks for cracking and that type of thing during a service uh so i don't obviously this this adds awareness and now people are actively taking their cranks into shops to have them inspected but i think fundamentally i think uh, people on top of this were already aware of the safety issue and were, we're already um actively working
0: on it so just to back up a little bit, I mean we do have all the full technical information and you know uh, action items and that sort of thing on the website. Uh, mm-hmm. head over to escapecollective.com look up for that article and they'll tell you the date code and all the other stuff. Um, I presented to Shimano a whole bunch of questions, of course, and uh, most of them they actually did answer quite a quite a lot of them uh, as far as like procedural stuff and some technical details, that sort of thing. Um, but as far as some of the uglier Issues and questions, they kind of expectedly passed. Um yep. so one thing that I'm really curious about is uh yeah, like like you said, like what why why this took so long because this was a very known issue. Um but what's interesting to me is that if Shimano Shimano obviously knew that this was an issue. Um and if they kind of just wanted to keep things sort of quiet-ish and just keep people happy, then you would have thought that they would have just automatically approved every related warranty claim that people had for this sort of thing. But uh, in looking at comments and messages from people, it's pretty clear that they weren't doing that. Uh, there yeah. actually are, are heard from quite a lot of people who said that their warranty claims were denied. Um which is a little troubling. And then to have this sort of thing come out basically 10 years later after the cranks were initially out on the market, Mm. um, it really, I mean, uh, I'm sure Shimada would never about it would never admit to this, but it really does feel like their hands were essentially forced based on my guess, however many complaints were filed or how many injuries were logged. Uh, I think in the official CPSC report, it was something like four and a half thousand reported failures and, Officially, it was only what, like a half dozen reports of injury or something like that. But mm. it's got to be more than that; it has to be. Yeah, I think
2: well, a figure that I saw uh, quoted in, a, in the <laughs> dealer uh, side of this was uh, around one percent failure rate, right. um, which means ninety nine percent are still good, but one percent is still a, a pretty big
0: number when you're talking about a few million products. So, yeah, I mean, um, if, yeah, if it, let's just say it's a million. Because yeah, based on the official figures that Shimano provided in the CPSC report, the failure rate was somewhere around point six percent. And let's just assume that it's the real world figures are quite a bit more than that. So let's just say one percent. And then if you assume two million cranks out there, that's what, twenty thousand cranks? Yep. Kind yeah. Kind of a lot. That's a lot of cranks. Yeah. And that's uh, and that's being pretty conservative with the numbers.
1: It's mm-hmm. it's a lot of cranks. But did it not feel like for a long time that it was kind of gonna be more than that? Did well, you no
2: did I think for the, sure that's the that's the bias of the internet right you're you're often only <laughs> hear the, and see the bad things right you look at say thanks shimano the, the instagram account and they they literally exist to post crack cranks so you're like wow these are really common but they in in theory are posting uh
0: most of them that are being seen on the internet Right, you know, and so, the thing is, obviously, they're only posting the broken stuff. It's not yeah. like it's not like they're posting the ninety nine percent of cranks that, that are broken. That would be a very broken. boring account if they did. But yeah, it would be very, yeah. <laughs> very boring. Yes. So, um, regardless, even if the failure rate is one percent, even if the total number in the you know Shimano was was very adamant in talking about how the total percentage of cranks that were experiencing failure was 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 pretty low numerically. Um, but the issue to me is that this is just a massive PR hit. It's mm. just huge. I yeah. mean, like to to, to to I'm sure there were legal issues going on behind the scenes. Yes. No question, um, based on all the conversations that we've had with Shimano over the years about this. But um, just on the public side of things, it just it's just such a hit to their reputation, particularly for a company that it's almost like the the bicycle equivalent of Toyota in a sense. That like and yeah. you know, they you 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 presumably would get Shimano stuff because it has this reputation for reliability and dependability and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then, and to have this thing be so public is, I just don't get it. Well, I mean, Toyota's had, had its own
2: recall issues where it was also similar, for sure. you know, uh, I mean, no one, no one's perfect. It, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think the main takeaway for me with this is that if you're a company and you know, you've got a product with issues in the market, look after your customer. <laughs> Because yes. I think that's that's the hardest part with this is hearing all of the comments of people over the last five years that have had these cranks fail and being told that their, their product is past the two or three year warranty period and that they can't, you know, that Shimano won't do anything or doesn't owe them anything and that they're out of pocket for a new crank set. And then now this comes out and they're like, well, what the hell? Like, you know, I've, I've spent four or five hundred dollars on a new crank set now. I threw out the cracked one that I was told was no warranty. And now you're telling me that you will replace it with no questions asked. I think that's the big hit here is that Shimano knew it was an issue and that they should have just been saying, look, your warranty is two years, maybe it's three years on due Your crank is actually five years old. We don't know anything, but out of goodwill, we will replace this. And I think that is my wish for people in the industry looking at this is, yeah, if you know there's a problem, look after them.
1: Yeah, I understand, Dave. And I'm less concerned about Shimano's reputation here and more exactly what you just said there. But also, especially given how long this went on, like it's, as we said, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a decade. It was a known problem throughout that. But I'm sort of more concerned about for all the cranks that have not developed an issue, Shimano were sort of telling us, well, just keep riding them. And mm-hmm. as you were telling us, Dave, mechanics are already checking for cracks. And I just don't know how you, like for, for myself, my parents' bikes, both of these cranks on them, I'm... I'm taking those cranks off because neither of my parents are going to check those cranks, and I'm only there once a week, and I'm probably not going to be taking the chain rings off every week to inspect uh, there. Yeah. So,
2: I would I would say it happens pretty slowly. I would say the the failures that you see where the the crank is in two pieces and the pedal is you know mm. on the ground, I think that had probably been happening for quite a while, and the person had been ignoring all sorts of horrible noises for quite some time um Mm. like you know it starts as like a a squeak and then it turns into a creak and then it turns into a really bad groan and then things start to feel loose and then the crank falls off uh so it's it's not a it's not an immediate process like it's not like you go to push off at the lights and you're you're perfectly fine crank just falls into two um that's just not not how this happens so i think for people yeah if you know what to look for and you know that any signs of delamination and sort of any signs of cracking or any signs of like movement around the chain ring uh bowing or or anything um that's the first sign and that's when you go to get it replaced uh but yeah i think if you if you look at the crank and you take the chain rings off once and you look and it's it's perfect and there's no cracking around it i would be saying you probably don't need to check it for a few months um and especially mm. under casual use you might never need to check it again the
1: uh, the the other issue for me, and again, given how long this went on for, is that the replacement now is a non-matching crankset. Mm-hmm. Um, and should you happen to have a parameter, a third-party parameter with it with on one of these cranks, you get a voucher towards the the replacement parameter. But the last time I checked parameter prices and the voucher figures that I've seen quoted, they're, it's not going to cover the cost of replacing your parameter. To me that sort of asks questions also of the third party parameter manufacturers that for years we knew there was problems with these cranks, yet you sort of continually offered them, but I mean, yeah, but at the same time,
0: I guess for those third party crank manufacturer for those third party power meter manufacturers, I mean what did they get to do um, yeah. like what option did they have essentially because if you and had the demand Shimano, was there for them, yeah, if you had Shibato officially saying that well, actually, you didn't. You didn't even have Shimano officially saying that there was no issue with it. You just had Shimano not officially saying anything about it. Yeah. Um. So you still had all these cranks that are out on the market. You still had all these people with those cranks who wanted power meters. So if you are one of those power meter companies that has a crank based power meter option, be it you know stages, four eyes, whatever, um, you know they were kind of stuck too. I think because they they either. If if you were to make the moral decision of like well these there seems to be something wrong with these cranks we should just not we should just not cater to them then yeah. at that point you're just making the decision to go out of business yeah yeah absolutely I think I've, I've got two
2: thoughts on that the first is that uh, in any other product when you modify that product like if a third party company gets involved and modifies that product <laughs> to adapt and install their own product onto it the vo- the warranty is void so my point of view it's actually pretty generous of Shimano to be saying. Yes, like you know, we're going to give you three hundred dollars for you know a refund on the money we never got from you
1: because you went ahead and bought it. Or is it realizing when to stop digging?
2: I think it's. I think it's a generous PR move on their point. I think it's. I think they've realized they've they've screwed up here, and I think they're they're willing to go out of pocket on a product they never actually sold. Um, I think I. I personally think it's it's a nice thing for them to do. I don't think they actually have to do it. Uh, but that said, I also think there's there's probably responsibility now on the third-party power meter companies to be like, okay, your voucher is for $300 and we're charging you $350. If you can prove that this is related to a recall and you're a pre-existing customer, we'll match that price, you know, so you're not out of pocket. I think... I think that's probably a, a fair request at this point in time, and they, they'd absolutely have the margin to do that. And I think it would look really, I think it would reflect and look really good on these power meter companies to to do that as well. Um, obviously, if, you know, yeah, as uh, assuming the price is close enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, but unfortunately, at that point, then that then shifts the the burden, the cost burden, back to those third party meter manufacturers. Yeah. I actually got a press release from Four Eyes uh, not too long after that recall went live, Um, and it did talk about essentially prioritizing customers who were affected by that recall uh, and trying, you know, doing whatever they could to to expedite people getting replacement power meters. Um, Doesn't say anything about a a reduced cost, however, which I Mm. think is probably understandable because in a lot of these situations, probably those companies can't afford to to drop their prices that much. Um, The other thing to consider is. From other people I've talked to in the industry, again, this is something that Shimano didn't really talk about. Um, the Their cost for this for this recall is, is almost certainly at least partially, if not completely, covered by some sort of liability insurance that they have. Um, so who knows how much of this is actually coming out of their own pockets. It's hard to say. Um, but if you're a third-party power meter manufacturer and then you know, if you were to offer some sort of discount for people who were affected – you don't get to use that liability insurance. You get, like Because this wasn't really through any fault yeah, of your own. No, sure. it's, that's essentially going to come out of your pocket. Yeah. Um,
2: I, I guess my point of view from that is that I see 4i, for example, <laughs> they they are more price competitive and closer to that uh, that coupon amount or that, that, um, that check amount that Shimano is giving than, than some other third-party players. And I think what will end up happening is that, say you're a Stages customer now and you need a new crank, probably more incentivized to go with the 4i if if that's the the closest price option uh and i think yeah it's it's probably a good idea for these these other brands to to offer something to keep their customers
0: or even just now especially given how we're in this post-covid lull in the bike industry in general um given what i think we are generally agreeing to be a pretty bad overall pr move by shimano in general on this whole thing um this does seem like an opportunity for some of those third-party power meter manufacturers to even just say like hey if you if this affected you you know provide some proof that 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 you filed a warranty claim whatever and we'll give you 10 percent off of a replacement or something like just some sort of token thing to at least yeah that's kind of what i meant yeah yeah but uh yeah anyway it's uh
1: James, was yep. one of your questions to Shimano if this if the uh the recall and the replacement if they would stand over cranks for second users or is it for first is it for why am I struggling to ask yeah. this question? So if, you know what if, I mean. the,
2: if the product exists, they'll replace it. You don't need any okay. proof of purchase. You don't need to go back to the original place of purchase. If you've got a crack set of cranks in your hand, they're gonna replace it.
0: Yeah, I mean at at this point I would say shimano doesn't really have the luxury of being super nitpicky as far as requirements and that sort of thing um yeah i i i i would have to imagine there is some legal stuff going on in the background um my my thought on this is that if there were a
2: shop that hoards broken parts I, my understanding is most of the broken cranks that like were not warranted, we're just thrown in the bin but if there was a you know if someone had decided to hoard all these and Buy them. The, that would be quite the 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 valuable stockpile.
1: Uh, asking on that on that note, asking for a friend is the taxi fares that some have needed to get home from a, a, a ride ended <laughs> by broken cranks covered.
0: Uh, I don't think so. No, I, don't I don't remember think so really seeing enough. any. I don't remember seeing mm-hmm. any mention in the in the official recall notice for that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately.
2: Yeah, it doesn't extend so. to new cleats for the walk home. It doesn't extend to new, new heel pads. Or, yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed.
0: All right, well, as I mentioned, uh, all that information is up, up, up live on the site, so head over to escapecollected.com for all the details. Uh, if you've got any other questions about this, feel free to leave those in a comment in that article or reach out to one of us directly. Uh, we're pretty easy to get a hold of, and we'll do our best to kind of guide you in the right direction. Um, anyway, moving on. So um, I'd have to imagine... Well, we don't even have to imagine. We we know that Shimano's competitors, unfortunately, are kind of licking their chops about this whole thing to some extent. Uh, we even saw some pretty cheeky Instagram uh, posts from the likes of like FSA and that sort of thing. Um, that one might have been a, a meme, actually, the it, one from FSA. I, oh, I didn't good, see good.
2: it on FSA's own channels.
0: Oh, um, oh okay. Um, All so right. I think it might Sorry. have
2: been a very good meme. But uh, SRAM did uh, the same day announce uh, that they'd won five out of the six grand tours
0: for this year. Right. On one on one group set. Yes. Eh, maybe a little misleading. <laughs> anyway. But speaking of SRAM, I that's actually what I'm gonna talk about now because uh whether or not they're actually happy about this is, you know, the whole saying about glass houses and stones. Um but uh SRAM actually did have some pretty big news, a big product release that just happened uh I think today actually, when this goes live. Uh they just launched their first EMTB motor system called mm. Powertrain. Mm. Um this thing was actually developed with Broza, uh, so Broza was already a player in the e mountain bike, uh, uh, e mountain bike motor space. So the specs are pretty intriguing. It's pretty powerful. It's got 90 newton meters of maximum torque, 680 watts peak power. Uh, there's just two assist levels instead of the usual kind of three or four. I'm uh, is calling them range and rally. Uh, basically saying any additional settings are they said they're saying they're unnecessary and confusing. Um, there's two battery options. Uh, one is a 730 watt hour integrated internal battery. And there's also a 630 watt external battery has also a 250 watt hour range extender. Uh, you can do auto shift. You can, you can program the thing to auto shift because this thing has to be used with SRAM's own transmission drivetrain. Uh, you can shift while coasting pretty neat. Uh, you can obviously shift under full power because that's essentially the big draw of transmission in general. Uh, if you get a full color top tube display that's integrated into the frame, uh and now you have a left hand two button axis pod controller to go along with the right hand one that was already out with transmission um oh, that one exists already. as usual oh it did
2: yeah yeah, uh, they were using it before? for um uh what do you what do they call their suspension that I'm blanking on
0: oh right, flight attendant uh, so you okay. could use it for that, yep.
2: but also you could use it just as a reverb controller um or you could set it up uh yeah to do. You're shifting. If you wanted like road style shifting on a mountain bike, Um gotcha, so, yeah. gotcha. But it's actually, it's actually the the left one is identical to the right. It's the same pod. It's just a different, just a different a, mount, different mountain. Yeah.
0: Um, but um, uh, this thing is going to launch initially with four brands. We're looking at Transition, Propane, proof, and gas gas uh, I don't have any prices for any of this stuff. I'm going to assume that it's not inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks pretty interesting. Uh, and having ridden some e-bikes with Brosa motors before i i'm expecting that this thing is going to be pretty quiet mm. um but yeah SRAM's first e-mountain bike uh drivetrain system and pretty exciting
2: yeah i mean uh, there are a lot of rumors of SRAM acquiring a, an e-bike company uh last year or early this year uh, Amprio and there was a lot of expectation that their their system would be based around that so it's it's interesting to see them partner with uh, Brosa on this but also, not totally surprising, given Brozo's the the partner of Specialized as well, and has well proven itself in the market. Uh, I actually bought one last week, and uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a, a good system. I think the the use of axis and the the kind of the wireless move is is quite positive because that's one thing that still annoys me about a lot of uh, EMTBs on the market is that you still have so additional many wires from the from the handlebar, which feels unnecessary uh like my my wish because i just got a a specialized turbo for myself and and my ideal would be to just remove the handlebar remote and just have the the top tube controller and just for a cleaner cockpit but that is not possible you have to run the handlebar controller and that's actually kind of a a thing i don't love about this new shram system as well Is they it's wireless now which is great but you actually have to run that left hand pod uh, so yeah, the the system won't work without it. Um, and I, from my point of view, that's fine, but then you're, what do you do with your dropper remote? So that left-hand pod works perfectly with a reverb well, it, dropper. Yes,
0: yes. So it, it, If but, you are running the full <laughs> SRAM wireless ecosystem, then yeah. it all integrates just fine. Yeah. So but if not, yeah. then if not, obviously, Dave, why aren't you? Yeah, uh, clearly.
2: I mean... Trams Defense that reverb dropper is my favorite dropper on the market. It is incredible. Quite good. But it is so expensive and you could understand that if you're not spending many 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 thousands of dollars on your e-bike that it's not going to come with that dropper post. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think for me that kind of feels like a bit of a weird move on their part to to design it to force you into using that wireless pod. Um but I also think it won't take long for aftermarket accessory companies to figure out other ways of mounting that pod elsewhere on the bike
0: correct i think i think you're right there yeah so but um, uh,
2: no, it looks good anyway
0: yeah and, either way like i said i haven't certainly haven't ridden it haven't even seen it in, in person actually mm. uh but looking forward to whenever that day comes i'm intrigued
2: yeah, yeah. Um, and i
0: think just not
2: to stay on this for too long but i think it's worth uh highlighting that shimano has very similar features available in market already you know wireless uh not wireless but wide electronic shifting with di2 xt Uh, with the auto shift and all that so i mean trams come to market and and matched basically matched what's what's in the market what i guess is kind of the pinnacle of shifting in the market and yeah it, it looks good but i i wouldn't say anything here is truly looking all that revolutionary
0: yeah either way uh like i said looking forward to trying it out at some point and we'll see from there. But uh, speaking of e-bikes, we're just going to touch on this next object real quickly. Uh, so Specialized just announced its new Creo 2, uh, like the original version. This one was designed to run uh, as either a road or gravel bike, or both if you have different wheels and tires sitting around. Uh, it gets a more powerful motor system, goes from 35 newton meters to 50 newton meters of torque and 240 watts to 320 watts of power. Uh, gets the updated future shock 3.0 suspension up front up to uh, supposedly up to 120 miles or almost 200k of claimed range. uh Mm. clearance for tires up to 29 by 2.2 which is pretty impressive for a drop bar bike um i mean all this stuff sounds like meaningful improvements i do know people who have one that are quite happy with it um but the thing that stands out for me is the way specialize is calling out in its in its media materials some of the competition in terms of motor efficiency which is something I haven't really seen referenced too much before um, because we hear a lot about system weight and size and power and whatnot Um, but in this case Specialized is claiming that their new SL 1.2 motor is able to convert 80% of the stored battery power into drive output as compared to uh, they're specifically calling out like TQ they're saying that one's only 65% efficient and uh, the Fazua what ride 50 is supposedly 72% efficient Uh, the, the figures quite notably don't mention brands like uh they don't mention brands like Bosch and shimano um mm. but uh i still find that pretty intriguing because it maybe should or could be a new metric in comparing e-bike systems
2: yeah uh my initial thought is that specialized is very always very clever with its marketing and this is just always a, another area that I guess many in the industry aren't equipped to compete with them on or haven't done the messaging on yet and uh who's going to prove them wrong at this time uh I, like i'm not saying they are wrong i think i think realistically they're making this claim because they've done the testing but it's going to take some time for people to be able to say otherwise and establish
1: metrics around this I, I haven't seen any of this so where does the efficiency claim come from is it like a reduced Drag or improved per- percentage uh, of energy heat
2: drawn from battery or? that
0: produces power is is sort of what their what the efficiency claim is. So yeah, exactly how they came to that figure is not entirely clear. Um, but anyway, like I said, I just find it intriguing that they are even just calling that out because, like I said, there's just not something that we've it's not not something that I've seen be a focus of e bike discussions uh, in. I guess even recent or not so recent years. So yeah. uh, probably something that should be talked about. I mean, it's just kind of like with electric uh, with electric cars. You hear a lot about you know battery range and size and that sort of thing, but you don't hear a whole lot. Well, maybe you don't hear enough about efficiency, mm. um, because I would say something like I don't know a. a tesla model 3 is probably i would presume more efficient than that new gmc hummer (laughs) that's my guess anyway um but that's something that people need to consider it's just the same as fuel economy in a in a internally internal combustion engine car um so yeah we might be seeing a new a new metric as far as comparing e-bikes
1: so we'll see how that goes moving forward aero e-bikes is that what i'm hearing you say james
0: Mm, well i mean aerodynamic efficiency would improve would improve uh power efficiency in
2: general wouldn't it the brake cables the brake hoses on this one are thankfully external uh which i find specialized has been doing more than a lot of other companies uh that's a requirement on
0: this one because it has
2: the future shock correct yeah yeah until they get what was the the hose gobbler right yeah yes Uh, (laughs) god uh but yeah i think uh, uh yeah it's worth it's worth noting that this is much more uh in my opinion and i guess in specializes opinion too uh this is much more a gravel bike than is a road bike now the Creo, when it was first released the Creo one was split as both but this one feels much more gravelly and uh Specialized officially don't recommend running less than a 38 millimeter tire width on this um in order to keep the bottom
0: bracket at a reasonable height yeah which is fair because realistically speaking there probably aren't gonna to be too many people who are gonna run it who who are gonna run a tire that small anyway mm-hmm. um but yeah good 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 word of warning there all right well let's uh let's move away from e bikes here
1: uh Ronan what is up with this weird x on the new Pinarellos? uh that must be the x stays that you're referring to on the new dogma x and x series endurance bikes from Pinarello, which are I mean, I've gone into this in quite a lot of detail and spent uh, twice last week, I spent 60 minutes on conference calls with Panarello and spent an entire day on Friday writing this up. So probably worth going across the website to get more details on it. But, but
2: For if, Ronan's own sanity, please, please
1: go to <laughs> com and read his story. <laughs> Effectively, what it is, is it's... Uh, a, a dogma f looking bike with the kind of geometry that uh i think we talked about a couple of weeks ago that we would like to see an endurance bike so uh the dogma x is slightly higher and slightly shorter in terms of stack and reach than a dogma f which is the out and out competition bike panarello we're saying now whereas the x series is more relaxed again uh and has quite a tall or stack and much shorter reach
2: have you how does it compare to like where does it sit in this the frame of like the BMC road machine and Cervelo Caledonia, is it more upright than that?
1: Uh, sorry, I can't answer that question. Oh, okay. But, as in, I, yeah, I I don't really know off the top of my head. Okay.
0: Uh, I All don't right. remember the numbers Got on the out. on the road machine off the top of my head, but looking at the Caledonia uh, and just looking at some of the Panarello specs, it, it does seem like this Dogma X is quite upright and short,
1: uh, relatively speaking. I would say that's probably um, the X series yes at, yeah. yes the dogma x is uh again I, I don't recall the numbers off the top of my head it's it's almost a week ago now that i was typing this up but um <laughs> it's uh, it's um yeah it, it, it's i thought it was at the time of reading it i thought it was sort of happy medium um in terms of what i would be looking for in an endurance bike i thought the x series would be much too tall and short for what i'd be looking for but uh the dogma x with closure anyway? We're kind of messing the whole point about the X days in this thing. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's what I wanted
0: to ask you. Because the, this this extra bracing that the, yes. that Pinarello has put on these frames, it's essentially just like another little span that goes from the t- almost to the t- almost from the top of the seat stays onto the seat tube, mm-hmm. um, which I would say also makes this more of a Y than an X. First of all, but anyway, um, is Pinarello essentially saying that this is the only way that they can produce? The blend of, uh, I guess, lateral stiffness and vertical flex that they're looking for in a bike that doesn't have a brake bridge? Because that's, that's what I'm taking from this.
1: Well, that's where the X comes in. And that the the Dogma X, so the sort of between the, the, the premium endurance bike now, it has a, maybe I should back up a little bit in that it, all these bikes feature like a, an arced seat stay that runs all the way to the junction with the seat tube at the top tube, uh, like a traditional bike would have done, and you're not getting any drop stage you see uh, more recently. But Panarello say that the problem with that design, although it adds in uh, a lot of uh, uh, flex that you would want in terms of compliance and that, it you actually lose a lot of um, lateral flex, a lot of lateral stuffness because you haven't got the, the bridge there where a rim brake used to occupy. And so they have filled that gap where the rim brake bridge used to be with the X bridge on the Dogma X, which is where it gets its name from. And I would agree that the additional seat stay junctions to the seat tube do make more of a Y shape. Um, but because of this X bridge that replaces that rim brake bridge, that's where the name X comes from. The X series also gets the name X, obviously, but it doesn't get that X bridge. So they've gone... Entirely for the Vertigo compliance there, um, and they left the X Bridge out of it. Uh, that's
2: very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, 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 I have, a, have,
1: a, have, a, have a child calling me at the top of the stairs—a child that should be asleep hours ago. Uh, so I was, uh, I was slightly. Uh, I'm not. Slightly... I'm not
2: referring to what you said as confusing. I'm referring to uh, Pinarello's choice of calling them a Dogma X
0: and what is it? X Series.
1: X Series. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah uh The other thing that's kind of kind of confusing is that um i don't know if everyone remember well I'm sure you two remember, but uh for everyone listening uh I think it was the twenty one tour when uh Stephen Croswick finished mm. the stage of the tour uh with a seat stay that was basically completely missing off of his cervello, and at the time, not too long after that we had a had a conversation with Scott Roy from cervello, and at least from cervello's point of view and his point of view as a a frame engineer he kind of made it pretty clear that seat stays don't really do much of anything anyway, Mm. at least in, in his opinion. So it's just intriguing that you have such divergent viewpoints, at least publicly from two companies that are pretty big.
1: Not sure actually on that. And my understanding of that is that yes, seat stays don't actually do all that much when you can beef up your bottom bracket and your chain stays to maintain the lateral stiffness that you require in a performance bike. Um, what Panarello didn't really seem to want to do was in, in beef up the bottom bracket area any further, um, but they did want to add in this vertigo compliance. Um, vibration absorption was a big one they talked about, and they've said that. To to be fair to them, they did say that the number one thing you do if you want to include extra comfort is bigger tires. So they did that, and then by elongating the chain stays and by going for the arc seat stays to improve compliance even further, they entered just so much. Uh, lateral flex that they then needed to stiffen up the the frame with uh, the X bridge um, with, in, with and more so, triangles. Yeah, and, and to me, comfort-inducing th- triangles. <laughs> well, <laughs> to me, the the stiffness element of that claim adds up in that if you look at this X bridge, the triangulated shapes within it, those are exactly the type of shapes you would expect to see under in just an area where you're trying to improve stiffness, and they're clearly, you know. A, working on some shear forces between the chain stays and their triangulated nose and stiffening up the whole area. The part of the, where the claim doesn't land with me, and the reason I required a second call with Panarello and still doesn't land with me, is the claim that the additional two junctions to the seat tube help absorb more vibrations. Um, and to me, that whole area just looks like it adds more stiffness. I can't this, really see how that adds any comfort and compliance.
2: Jane- James, you'll get this, but uh, this is
0: reminding me of old GT triple triangle marketing. Uh, I mean, I certainly remember GT triple triangle, but I don't remember what they were saying as far as the marketing goes. Mm. I, I vaguely, I might might be remembering this wrongly, and maybe I'm confusing it with another brand that
2: did other did something similar. But yeah, there were claims that it was uh, dissipating forces into the top tube and not directly into the C tube, and that that you know, like uh, spreading the forces
0: around uh Mm. all the loads Mm. you know so yeah smoother ride which either way the question i I guess the real question is i know that you didn't have a a chance to ride this bike at length necessarily like you know i haven't ridden the bike at all oh okay Uh, so then there's no point in me asking this question because what i'm wondering is if this thing actually works anyway and i guess the answer to that is we don't know yet
1: Mm, haven't haven't ridden this bike at all um yeah interested (laughs) To get a feed for it though.
0: All right. Well, um yeah, well, as Ronan mentioned, he does have a very detailed write-up up on escape So head over there to check it out. And then in the meantime, we're going to continue working to see if we can get a test sample here to find out if this thing actually works. Yeah.
2: And I I as well will go back and read it so I can get an understanding of the difference between a dogma X and an X series without the dogma.
1: F competition bike. X endurance bike. Still confused. All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, Canyon just announced a mid-cycle refresh of their in-flight uh, cyclocross bike. Uh, frame itself is unchanged as far as I can tell, but the main difference is the front end. Uh, you got a new fork, a new cockpit, and they have added their CP0018 aero cockpit to this bike, the same one that is used on the Endura's and Aero and Ultimate. Uh, and basically what you get now is fully hidden cabling. Um, I can kind of understand why that would be kind of appealing from a cross perspective just because of all the mud and like not wanting to get things tangled up and like sort of like an easier to clean perspective, sort of. But, um, I am maybe not super excited about the fact that, um, as much as I like how that CP0018 feels in my hands and as Nice as it kind of looks. Uh, it's also among the most difficult systems to service. Uh, it also offers pretty limited adjustability, which seems to, be, seems to me to be things that maybe you wouldn't want to introduce into a cross bike, especially the, the serviceability thing. Yeah, and the ability to change like bar tilt, for example, which is very common to
2: do from rider to rider in cross.
0: Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head on this one a little bit. I can certainly see why... <sighs> I guess I can't recall an instance where a brand has so widely spread one component concept across multiple ranges. So again, Canyon's using this on the Aeroad, Ultimate, Endurance, and now InFlight. And as far as I can tell, these are the exact same cockpits. Um, like one aspect of this thing is it has a three-piece design with removable ends. Um, you do get an adjustable width, which is kind of neat. That's a nice little, nice little feature. Um, but one of the things that Canyon had touted at the introduction of this thing, however many years ago, was that they would be able to offer different drop shapes. And to date, we have not seen that as far as I'm aware. And it seems like this would be such a prime opportunity to do that. Mm. Uh
2: Uh, I in theory I love the idea of brands reusing components because it means future availability of those components once the brand is discontinued I mean the the pressure for them to keep supply of those parts is just going to be that much greater and the ability to find those parts will be that much greater so generally speaking I love when brands have like say a d-shaped seat post and they keep the same shape across multiple generations and in theory this is what is happening there and, and i should be more positive about it but as you say james this is one of the harder systems to service uh and i had friends waiting for the new say canyon endure race to come out and to see what that was like and i've actively advised them not to get that based purely on the, how hard this cockpit is to service uh so yeah it kind of it kind of pains me that canyon has decided that this is this is the thing that they're going to put on every bike that they have uh, because it's just. Again, on paper and in theory it's it's a really neat design, but in practice when it comes to replacing a headset bearing or if you happen to say crash the bike and you need to replace part of the ha- the handlebar uh it's just which not happens a, nice... a lot in cross i should say yes yeah it's and it's it's just yeah both replacing headset bearings and crashing happens a lot in cross uh it's just not a nice system to work with, so yeah i don't I don't know. Those those are my thoughts on it. I'm sorry Canyon. Uh generally speaking, love what you do, but I'm looking forward to the generations of bike when you when you don't use the soundbar. Maybe the CPO 19? Maybe perhaps. <laughs> perhaps.
1: Makes, anyway, all, all that aside, the, I think they could make this a lot better if there was at least different stem length options available.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the fact that you still can't choose a stem length and uh, at when at the time when you order the bike is still kind of blows my mind a little bit. Um, you know, Kenyon does like to say that the stock length does fit the majority of people who are ordering whatever frame size there is. But if
1: you are not in the majority, then... Mm. Sorry. Sorry. Do you not pay the same price as the majority, then, if you're not?
0: <laughs> <laughs> mm.
1: Anyway, I'm a little bit just- sore about the subject at the moment because I was replacing internally rooted uh, mm-hmm. brake hoses on a bike recently and got halfway through the job and noticed that I hadn't been sent the right uh, headset cap. Oh. Um, so I put it all back together. And so I ended up with a, a bit of a, a sort of internal, sort of external setup. It would have worked fine, but it just didn't look all that good and when I then went to throw out the empty box, I realized I had been sent the headset cap, and so now I have to do it all again. Um, and I had actually timed the, the job the first time, and it was like 90 minutes, um, and that was being pretty efficient. And yeah, that's actually pretty quick. So, mm.
0: Eek. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Dave, as you mentioned, sorry, Canyon. I uh, don't mean to rain on your parade of this lovely mid-cycle refresh of your in-flight but not a move that i am super excited
2: about um Mm-mm. anyway which is a shame on. because uh, there's really not many brands offering dedicated cross bikes so in theory they'd no, have a pretty you know a, a small market but they'd have a good sized chunk of that small market to cater to yeah uh, and yep.
0: yeah anyway so those team mechanics or the cross bikes hmm sorry <laughs> uh anyway, moving on, uh back in early August we talked about a YouTube video that someone had made. Uh that was Basically saying Continental's tubeless uh, tubeless road tires weren't safe because they blew off the rim at unreasonably low inflation pressures Um, caused quite a bit of – well, stirred up quite a bit there. A lot of discussion around around that. Lots of people suddenly thinking that Conti tires weren't safe. Uh, Well, that person has just published a follow-up video and the results are about what we expected, I should say. like Looking back, I think we were pretty much dead on. So as it turns out – Continental was obviously quite interested in what was going on here, and they contacted the person who made the video and uh, requested the tire and then ended up requesting the wheel also to do a little bit more of an in-depth analysis. just If nothing else, just to find out what was going on here, because if there was an issue with their tire, they wanted to know about it. Um, But according to Continental's analysis, uh, their tire is fine actually uh turns out that they they took that same tire and mounted it on a rim that was in the right spec and dimensions and everything and held up just fine uh but however it was actually the extra light carbon rim that was at fault here because it was made without following uh, established iso or etrto dimensional guidelines for hookless tubeless rims so basically the rim diameter was too small and the sidewalls are too low that's how they save weight make the wheel diameter smaller saves weight Yeah. Yeah. And there was even a graphic on the side of the rim saying that uh, the maximum inflation pressure was much higher than what it should have been. So um, this is not a case where Continental is just tossing extra light under the bus. Uh, Apparently, this customer also contacted extra light to find out what the heck was going on and what they could do. Uh, And extra light basically admitted that they decided on their own that because they thought that tubeless road tires uh, at the time, whenever this rim was made um, because they thought that tubeless road tires were kind of unreasonably hard to install. They sort of just decided to make the rim smaller to make it easier to install those tires. But um, the brand actually had the gall to suggest to this user that they just add more roll or add more wraps of tape to increase the rim diameter, uh, which of course would also make the sidewall even shorter than it is now. Um, yeah, uh, less than ideal situation, as our friend Raul Lucier would like to say. Um, but uh, to me, the takeaway from this is that hookless still is not my favorite setup for the road. Uh, I will say that. However, uh, if the dimensional tolerances are properly followed, then stuff like this shouldn't happen. And I think this is the sort of thing where you have a case where someone is being pretty irresponsible with their product and releasing product that they apparently knew is not uh, in accordance with the dimensional guidelines and, uh, flat out they're putting people at risk. I think,
2: Mm. I think I feel quite justified now in my Paddington review from last week, kind of saying that a thousand gram steel spoke disc brake wheel scare me. And that that's the one reason why I wouldn't purchase, uh, An Extra Light wheel versus something like a a Partington. Uh, Feeling quite justified in that, having
0: heard and seen all this now. Well, that said, had Extra Light made this rim just a little bit bigger and just a little bit taller in the sidewalls, then yes, the rim would have been a little bit heavier. But presumably this tire maybe wouldn't have blown off
2: yeah i i still think that uh when you get wheels this light with with steel spokes you still uh there's still issues and questions around the hoop stiffness of the wheel so how much it compression uh compresses under under the pressure of the tire and how much that changes the diameter of everything like how much spoke tension loss you have uh and that's something that partington i know put a lot of effort into to figuring out and and to retaining that stiffness and making everything stiff enough that you don't get that spoke tension drop. Uh, and I don't think that it's that easy of an engineering solution. Uh, and I, I, I strongly question whether the likes of, uh, extra light would, would put the, the research and development into that aspect of it, that there is no shrinkage of the rim. Um, so yeah, I still, I still stand by my, my statement that when we're talking about, really really lightweight disc brake wheels that you you need to be thinking about things like that which are not necessarily something the brands are going to talk about but yeah like how the the wheel is going to respond to being put under a significant pressure uh and whether you see spoke tension drop and if you see spoke tension drop then that is a sign that things are, are shrinking and that's probably going to affect your tire fitment as well so um
1: the other the other big revelation from the follow up video that nobody has touched on. Mm. We now know why he exploded tire ceiling all over his kitchen. Did you see how well he keeps his garden? <laughs> 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 I wouldn't be having sealant on on that garden, no way. Was his garden
2: cleaner than the
1: the kitchen? The kitchen was oh, pretty the, clean. The kitchen was pristine as well. I mean both of them were just yeah, but the, uh I, I just yeah. It was a um, it was a joke, Dave. Oh, <laughs> Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, our our last bit of news today
0: actually has nothing to do with bike product at all. Uh, not specifically anyway. Um, uh, but rather a new tech podcast from Escape Collective. Uh Ronin, take it away. This is this is yeah. your baby
1: here. What are we talking about here? We we literally just finished up recording one of the first episodes earlier today. Uh this is the performance well this is performance process, the podcast that we are, myself and Kelly Fretz, are going to be doing, kind of speaking to experts in performance and unpacking some of the different processes that go into some of the best performances that you hear or see uh, around the world. So whether you're interested in going faster yourself or you're just interested in understanding how the pros are going faster and faster each year, we're going to try and break down as much of that as we can. So this is a mountain bike focused podcast? It is not. <laughs> Okay. So it's, top, so across. Uh, it's it's all elements of performance. It'll be transferable, but I certainly will not be leading the mountain bike charge on it. Okay. All right.
0: Uh, so how frequently are you going to be putting episodes out?
1: You should expect to hear from us every second week, every other week, fortnightly by... Weekly, uh, however you describe uh, every other week around the <laughs> world. <laughs> uh, and where are people going to be able to find this thing, running? Uh, it's for members only, actually, James. What? Uh, so you have to be an escape collective member to hear what? Uh, these podcasts. Um, but no doubt the escape members can tell non-members how good this is and spread the word that way. Ah, well this if you want to e- listen, you'll have to go to escapecollective.com forward slash join if you're not already a member. Yeah, if you are and a member. If you, and if you, you are a member,
2: just, how, do you, how do you get access to this?
1: We will be sharing an um, RSS feed uh, that you mm. literally just click a link and then you don't really have to think about it again. It will automatically populate into your chosen podcast library uh, or uh, app or whatever. Um, so it's simple from then on. All right. We, we'll run. We in first, a,
2: sorry. Can I? Can we uh, have a little tease of what what oh, episode you might have recorded? Just going to ask well, the same uh, thing. Yeah. Well, the
1: the the podcast we recorded today may or may not be the first oh, that will okay. go live. Um, but uh, I will tell you that within the first week, we have either the process of winning all three grand tours in one season, or the process of breaking ten hour records will be the topics up for discussion.
0: Mm. Uh, well, any idea when we are going to publish this October first episode? the of- 5th
1: will be the first, um, so not long to go. There's a pilot episode, I think, dropping round about right now as we record this, so yesterday as you're listening.
0: Mm, intriguing, intriguing. All right, well, I'm excited to get this thing off the ground. I think hopefully people are excited to listen to it. Um, yeah, I think it'll be... Pretty cool. It'll it'll certainly give you a venue to get even even geekier. Yeah, rotor, which I know. But, that you but it's also do.
1: just a um, yes. There will be geeking out on it, but there there's. It's also just a way of sort of. You know me. I'm always going to be fo- focused on my next performance or whatever, or training towards something that I'm working towards. And quite often, thanks to the luxury position I have within this job, I get to speak to a lot of very very intelligent people who know how to make the most of whatever power you have. And rather than keeping those conversations to myself or limiting them to whatever I can fit into an article, we're literally just going to be having those conversations with a mic recording and then publishing them. So they're, they'll be there for the benefit of all our members. Cool. Well, it
0: sounds exciting, Ronan. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully everyone listening to this is as well. Uh, yeah. Well, first episode is going to be dropping pretty soon. So yeah, pay attention. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, yeah, like I said, we're wrapping up the news section here. Let's find out what's on everyone's mind this week. Dave, you want to start first here?
2: Yeah, I kind of uh, teased it earlier in the in the episode, but I bought an e-bike, and uh, I'm an e-mountain biker now. So, yeah, I've got flat pedals on it, and, uh, yeah, I've got a, I'm wearing my big trail helmet. Uh, I'm going to start wearing knee pads on every ride. You've got a Toyota Tacoma now. I still need to get that i <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually need to get a suitable bike rack for my e-mountain bike um but yeah i'm 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 one of them i'm i'm joining them and it's what a hoot uh yeah so for me i'd i had been wanting one for a couple of years now so being in sydney i'm in the northern beaches of sydney and we have a lot of great mountain bike trails around here but all of them are, are pretty pretty technical descents uh with a lot of elevation loss uh and then you have very steep climbs back out so you don't get a lot of descending for the amount of climbing you do uh and that combined with the highly technical and very rocky terrain you're kind of encouraged to ride like a long travel enduro bike but then the climbs suck so i've always had like a you know country sort of short travel trail bike but then i don't feel confident on any of the descents so for me i I think yeah an e-mountain bike makes makes perfect sense and it explains why we see so many of them around here that you have the suspension travel to get you down the hill and then you have a motor to get you get all that suspension travel back up the hill uh and i'm hoping that i descend more and get
0: my confidence on rocks back to where it once was and
2: uh, it's exciting
0: Uh, That's funny that you mentioned that you've been thinking about that for the last couple of years and for that type of trail, because uh, there is a trail network that's pretty close to me. That's one of the most popular, or I guess one of the ones that I frequent most often. Uh, And it's pretty similar terrain, actually. Lots of very steep and technical descents, uh, pretty heinous climbs to get to those (laughs) descents. And I have actually considered several times over the last few years whether or not it's maybe time to finally bite that bullet and pick up an e-mountain bike and I dare say that's probably going to happen sooner than later for me. Um, we'll see. Uh, there's an awful lot of interesting entrance into that market, so uh, yeah, I think uh, I think there's going to be an e mountain bike in my future at some point. And it, it it's interesting because a lot of people who are kind of die hard against e mountain bikes, um, you know, they 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 say that it's just cheating and you're lazy and whatever. Uh, I would actually almost argue the opposite because. Everyone – all of my friends, anyway, that I know who have both regular and powered mountain bikes, uh, they complement each other seemingly quite well um, because the people who do ride e-mountain bikes, they have become noticeably better and more skilled riders because they are able to session things more and more often. Um, And that is certainly something that I've picked up on in the last few years. So, uh, yeah, I might be joining you sometime soon. Cool. Yes, welcome, welcome.
2: Uh, I will say that as a as a tech editor, I took so long to to buy one. I, like I I remember going to a demo session to ride the very first Turbo Levo when Specialized first entered the mountain bike space. So I mean I I'm not new to this space. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert in the space, but I'm not new to it. And I've owned e bikes before. And what took me so long to get an e mountain bike is that I mean one they're incredibly expensive during COVID, but also uh, the technology moves so fast. And James, you know, I see, you know, we get a little bit of advance notice or, or hear rumors of what's coming. And it's hard to know when to jump in because you're just seeing this this rapid advancement in this industry. You are know, like, oh, if I just wait another six months and the motors will be 10% more powerful and 10% lighter, uh, and that was kind of the hesitation is I was like, you know, watching the skipping rope going around and couldn't figure out when to jump in. Uh, and I finally bit the bullet. And obviously, there's always going to be new things just around the corner. But eventually, you just have to go, you know, that bike does what I need. And it it has everything I want on it. And so be it if it's out of date in six months time. So, yeah. So that's why I ended up with the Turbo Levo is that on paper, it's, um, I mean, I got friends that I, very much trust some in media some not that that have that bike and they they rave about and they say it's the best one they've ridden uh and i like that the cable routing wasn't through the headset which quite a few e-bikes do uh and i like the motor system on it um but yeah it also you know it it sort of just felt like it had a high amount of power compared to other systems on the market and a good amount of refinement so that's how i ended up on the turbo Levi.
0: well cool let's uh like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is not going to be the first time that we talk about your, your dive into the e-mountain bike space, so it should be fun. Uh, speaking of mountain bikes, uh, someone sent me – well, I, I shouldn't say that they sent me, but I think it was posted on the uh, Escape Collective member-only Discord channel. Um, a very valid question, actually, uh, talking about or I guess asking whether it makes sense uh, for Schrader valves to be back in – uh, back in play for mountain bikes and honestly i don't see why that wouldn't be the case necessarily because it makes an awful lot of sense I and mean, presto valves were uh they came about because the rims were getting narrower and narrower and you didn't want to have that big of a hole in the rim uh but nowadays that's not really an issue because mountain bike rims in particular have gotten awfully wide yeah and especially and with works. everything yeah and especially with everything uh running tubeless uh the larger dia- larger body diameter on a Schrader valve Seems like it'd be perfect, actually. It'd be far less likely to clog, especially with like the less intricate uh, internals of that thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't see any functional reason why that shouldn't be the case. To you? No, not at all. I, th- I feel like this is a topic that comes up every year
2: or two, and there's uh, an opinion piece written by some editor somewhere at a mountain bike site that's like, why isn't this already a thing? And then a few brands kind of offer it, and then it disappears again just due to cycling being a traditional based you know yep. we yep. do things because we've always do we've always done things uh yeah there there's in my mind there's no legitimate reason that we shouldn't be doing this mm. uh, i just yeah i mean we're there's there seems to be a lot of people trying to recreate and reinvent the presto valve like the you know the the reserve uh, fillmore valve comes to mind um which is you know a, a good product in many ways but in my mind it the Schrader
0: valve would achieve much the same thing at a much lower cost I mean, in Ron, Ronan's thinking to himself right now, oh, but trader valves, trader valve stems would be so much less arrow. Mm, that
1: it's almost like you read my mind. <laughs> but
0: then, but then you get the what
2: was the what's the company that has the removable valve? Newman.
1: Newman, yeah, and mm, you just get which, that, which does actually use a trader valve, doesn't it? Yeah, if I think I remember so. Correctly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: anyway, um, yeah, uh, Ronan, I don't
2: see any reason not to.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I guess we'll just. We'll just continue to see what happens there, if anything. I'm guessing probably nothing, because, like you said, Dave, we, this is something that pops up pretty, fr- pretty frequently mm-hmm. and it never seems to lead to anything. But the other stranger things have happened. The
2: other misconception around presser and trader is that the common misconception is is related to pressure. Is that, that there's a lot of bu- people that believe presser handles high pressure better, but that's just not the case because uh, they use trader valves on air suspension. Which so your three hundred, three hundred and fifty psi rear shock has a trader valve. So pressure is not an issue.
1: Could could we develop a valve of either type that when used on a hookless rim and exceeds 70 PSA just instantly fails yes. or something? Or yeah,
2: there's the, there are pressure release valves already in the market. Uh, I actually... I vaguely think it's probably, it's a different purpose. It's to relieve any accidental pressure in the sidewall of the rim. But
0: I think like Karima has something like that on in play. Um, and I mean, Envy has like the, has like a pressure release valve yeah. nut sort of thing, Yeah, but not, nothing, quite like what you're talking about, Ronan. Uh, it's an interesting idea. However, uh, it's intriguing. Um, speaking of arrow, uh, Ronan, you've got some thoughts on fairings, I believe, don't you?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, anybody who listens to the Placeholder podcast this week will have heard twenty minutes of me discussing. Uh, I don't like to call them fairings, James. I like to call them onboard arrow structures, on-body fairings. arrow structures. They're fairings, or or uh, the other one I came up with was Wami bars, which uh, stands for wake altering. Oh, I can't remember now. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have another. As we already discussed, I have another podcast now where I, I maybe get to divulge the arrow stuff on my mind. So I'll keep. I'll keep this one short, but, um, basically the, 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 the thing on my mind this week is the growing trends within the competitive space in terms of either time trailing with your head down or adding a camelback down the front of your skin suit or whatever it might be. Narrower bars, um, skin suits, basically the idea that there is a slam dunk arrow gain out there that will be faster for everybody. And more often than not, there is no such thing as a slam dunk arrow game. It could be slower for one person, faster for another. It might be no different for the next person, um, and except for
2: head socks, head socks are universally considered faster. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> sorry, is, just is faster me. the word you were looking for there? <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, it, just the. Yeah, the the as I spoke to more and more people this week on um, about these fairings that have been causing quite the uh, debate in the UK time failing scene, uh, the recurring theme that has been coming up and the recurring discussion with these experts in the field is before you spend anything or make any assumptions in terms of arrow, if at all possible, try to test it in some way, shape, or form because, yeah, it's just so writer-dependent. I don't know if that was a PSA or on my mind or whatever, but... Um, if we're sticking to e-bikes the other thing on my mind at the moment that i'm not ready to get into yet is electric cargo bikes i'm doing a lot of looking into those at the moment
0: oh that should be a fun discussion um Mm -hmm. but i was just going to say that we're pretty much out of time anyway so we can just say that your that your air discussion just now was both an on your mind and a PSA, and we can just we can just call it good there okay um yeah we are actually pretty much out of time here so we're just going to go ahead and wrap this one up uh, I know we have already mentioned earlier about our uh, membership for Escape Collective, um, but this seems like a perfect time to remind you anyway that if you are not already a member of the Escape Collective, uh, now's a good time to join. You can head over to escapecollective.com slash join uh, because memberships is how we fund everything that we do here. Uh, and if no one pays for what we're doing, then we can't do this anymore, which would which would, which would would make us very sad.
1: Could you imagine an hour long podcast with no, with our voices not in us? I mean that would be much worse so. <laughs>
2: uh yeah, i mean the pod this podcast exists because of our members, but new podcasts uh soon such as the one we uh Ron was talking about the process uh are about to exist just for our members and only for our members uh and yeah, I think I teased this last week, and again we'll we'll tell you more soon, but uh we're gonna have more geek warning style episodes as well uh just for members. Uh, this podcast that you're listening to now isn't going to go anywhere. It'll remain open, but there's more to come for those that support us. We're going to continue to guilt trip
0: you though. So oh, just yeah. be aware. Very much so. <laughs> uh, so one last, one last request before we sign off, uh, as I mentioned in last week's show, uh, we- it, it, it is actually very helpful for us if people leave more ratings and reviews on iTunes because it helps people helps more people find the show. Uh, so thank you to everyone who left those ratings and reviews in the last couple of weeks. It's been very helpful. Uh, if you have not already done so, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review for Geek Warning. And as we said before, you can say whatever you want in the comments, but five stars only, please. Help us out. Uh, anyway, that'll do it for this week's episode of Geek Warning. Thanks again for listening as always, and we'll see you next week. Cheers.